everybody. How you doing? And welcome to episode number 199 of the John Riley Project. And this is a podcast all about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So thanks for joining me. We're going to talk a little bit about the $1,400 COVID stimulus checks that are currently being bantied about in Congress. Hoping we're going to talk a little bit about um, some of our local schools and some of the challenges that they're facing trying to get their students back in class. And uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about, you know, ways you can take control of your life. And so you're not a pawn in their game. So you're not being manipulated by this whole process. So that's what we're going to cover today in this podcast. But um, hey, thanks for joining me. If you're watching on um, our live stream on Facebook or on YouTube, we'd be happy to take your questions and comments on the air. I'll read them on the air and we'll have a bit of a discussion and make this an interactive podcast, even though I don't have a guest in the studio like I did on Friday with Pete Murray, um, you can be my guest just through the, the live stream chat. So I encourage your questions and comments as we get going. Um, and um, I just want to say, you know, hey, we, you know, you can follow this podcast on Apple Podcasts, on Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and of course on YouTube where I put all the videos and I put the videos also on Facebook. So I try to make this as accessible to everyone and put it in whatever media you prefer to watch it or listen to. Um, but speaking of guests and speaking of Pete Murray, I want to give a big shout out, a big thank you to Pete Murray. You know, he joined us on Friday, um, a deputy attorney general here in the state of California. And we went through all of the logistical steps, the constitutionality of the Trump impeachment trial. And that's already starting now with the Senate today. And I guess President Trump is already calling it a sham, a witch hunt. And, you know, a lot of the rhetoric that we expected to hear. And, you know, Pete Murray and I, we talked it out. So if you get a chance, check out that podcast episode from Friday. If you want to just sort of get a, a foundational understanding of what this impeachment trial is how it's different from a criminal uh, case, whether it's yeah, a criminal or a civil case. It, this is a very uh, political process, not a legal process. So it follows very different rules. Um, but we also kind of forecasted what we think was going to happen. So we encourage you to just check out that episode from last Friday. I thought it was terrific. And thanks again to Pete Murray for joining us. Um, also, this is the day after the Super Bowl. I know for a lot of people, they take the day off, I guess. Maybe they've been having a few too many adult beverages. But uh, what did you think of the game last night? You know, it was a blowout. I, you know, I think we all thought that the Chiefs were going to be a lot more competitive. But, yeah, Tom Brady, man, that guy is something. He, It's interesting. He, he grew up in the city right next door to the city that I grew up in. I grew up in Burlingame, California, and he grew up in San Mateo. And uh, went to a high school kind of near me, Sarah High School, which is a that's a high school that produced Barry Bonds and Lynn Swan, a lot of good athletes that come out of that school. But, you know, Tom Brady is something. I mean, when he first came on the scene, you know, he was the new guy, the fresh face. He unseated, what was it, Drew Bledsoe as the quarterback of the Patriots. And and then he kept winning and, and then it became fashionable to hate on Tom Brady. And now the guy is just so damn good. You just got to give him props. You got to give him respect. So unbelievable. So what is it now? Seven um, NFL championship rings he has. It's unbelievable. Um, 
But I know, you know, here in my local town of Poway, on one of the Poway Facebook groups, I guess some neighbors were walking down the street and they noticed some other house was having a, having a big Super Bowl party at their house. And oh man, the conversation. You could imagine, you know, a lot of people really angry, really upset, calling the cops and, you know, trying to break up these, these um, social events that are basically violating COVID protocol. Um, and it's all part of this controversy, right? You know, trying to contain the virus, but still trying to let people live their life. And people are breaking the rules, you know, prohibition, doesn't work. And, you know, people have broken the rules with their business to, you know, keep their business open for their own livelihood and to serve their customers. People are breaking the rules when it comes to social events. Now, overall, you know, dramatically, I think people, the social events are way, way, way down, um, but there's still going to be these cases. And it makes you wonder, you know, if someone's having a Super Bowl party, they got 20 people at their house. Do you think they should call the cops on them? What do you think? I'd be interested in your thoughts on it. Share with me your thoughts on the live stream. Um, but yeah, I was watching that fourth quarter and it was just a blowout. It was really ugly. I spent most of the fourth quarter rewatching the Prince halftime show uh, from 2007 and reading an article about that. And that was really a remarkable um, a remarkable event, that Prince halftime show in the rain in Miami. If you get a chance, you know, go back and watch some of the YouTube uh, documentaries on it. There's some really good articles that talk about everything that went into um, making sure that that live event could happen without a hitch and how it turned out to be such a magical event. And you compare that halftime show with the one that we just had with with The weekend. Um, I don't know. The, 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 the halftime show last night, it wasn't that I hated it. It just didn't do anything for me. You know, it was unemotional. And, you know, it just kind of felt like ah, there, it could have been better. But, you know, the guy put in, what, $7 million of his own money? But for what? But uh, I think that overall was a disappointment. But at any rate, you know, Super Bowl Sunday, you have some fun. You enjoy some uh, time with with your family. I know my wife and I, we watched it here. Um, but now, yeah, we're back in the saddle again now. So it's uh, it's the day after um, Super Bowl Sunday. I also you know took my mom in and got her vaccine in the 75 and over group. That's good progress on the COVID vaccine. Love that. And speaking of COVID, you know, the Aztecs now are finally back playing tonight. They're going to be against San Jose State. And now that the Super Bowl is over, we can turn the page and get ready for baseball season. That's coming soon. So anyways, those are just a bunch of random top of mind thoughts that I'd share to kick off the podcast. But let's get into the main topic. And the main topic is this $1,400 stimulus check that's being debated in Congress. So you figure in the in the Senate, they're dealing with the Trump impeachment trial. But in the House of Representatives and actually the senators, too, they're battling on what this COVID relief check should be. Now, remember, President Trump, you know, gave everyone below a certain threshold of income. Was it seventy five thousand um, for a person, or one hundred and fifty for a family? And that might have been what it was. And everyone under that threshold got a six hundred dollar check. And now. The Democrats want to fulfill the promise to make it a full two thousand dollars. So they're trying to make up the Delta with a fourteen hundred dollar check. And of course, you know, in the Georgia Senate race, people said if you vote for Warnock, you vote for Ossoff, you're going to get fourteen hundred dollars. It was almost like, a, you know, 
vote for me and I'll give you money, that kind of a thing. And so now the Democrats are trying to figure out what, how they're going to go about it. And the funny thing is, is now the Democrats are having trouble gaining agreement because some of the more, I guess, fiscally conservative Democrats, the, the blue dog Democrats like Joe Manchin are now talking about, yeah, we'll do a $1,400 check, but we're going to give it to less people, you know? So again, the original proposal, a $75,000 limit on individual income for the year, anyone below that would qualify under Biden's original proposal. Manchin, uh, Senator Manchin from West Virginia, a Democrat, wants to lower that threshold to $50,000. So if you earn more than $50,000, you don't get the check. And at the household level, the, the cap is at one hundred and fifty, dollars and Manchin wants to lower that to $100,000. And so it's amazing. Now, the Democrats are fighting amongst themselves on what they should do and what's the right amount. And Joe Manchin, an interesting character. I mean, you know, he's a Democrat in West Virginia, which is a pretty hardcore red state, a Democrat that lives amongst a great number of Republicans. Now that the Senate is a 50-50 split, this puts Manchin in a very powerful position in in the Senate because his vote becomes critical. His vote could swing a a 50-50 vote with Kamala Harris as the tiebreaker to a 51-49 and giving more power to the Republicans. So it's he's in a really interesting spot. And so he's in a battle now with Bernie and Elizabeth Warren, who all want to keep it at $75,000 limit. And um, it was funny, as Bernie made a comment, he goes, Trump gave everyone, you know, all the working class, I guess he defines working class as less than 75,000. Trump gave the working class a $600 check and the Democrats might not even be able to deliver a check to the working class. The Trump may one up them. <laughs> and it's just funny. I mean, it just kind of goes to show that the Republicans, people say that, you know, the Republicans hate socialism and they're fighting against socialism. The Republicans are socialists too. I mean, just to a slightly different degree than the Democrats. And so that's what we're seeing play out. But, you know, I, I ran some of the numbers. And I thought this was really interesting because, you know, $75,000, um, you know, as being the cap on qualifying for the $1,400 stimulus check, I mean, $1,400 means a, 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 it's a big difference depending on where you are in the United States. I mean, if you're here in San Diego, the cost of living is extraordinary you know, $75,000 salary is not that big of a leap. Um, certainly $50,000, which is the the lower threshold, again, not that big of a leap. I mean, the median income in San Diego County, I think is around, it's in the high 50s or maybe 60,000, maybe pre-COVID. I mean, since COVID, things have shaken up. But, you know, the the it's interesting that they want to apply this consistent dollar amount all the way across the country when costs of living vary so dramatically. So I went onto this website. It's called nerdwallet.com and they have a cost of living calculator and it's really interesting. And so I, um, I use the $75,000 number, assuming $75,000 in San Diego. How much is that worth in Morgantown, West Virginia? And 75,000 in San Diego is the equivalent of 47,000. $837 in Morgantown, West Virginia. And if you want to even take it a step lower, in Memphis, Tennessee, $75,000 in San Diego 
is actually the equivalent of 42603 in Memphis because the cost of living is so dramatically lower. So it's interesting that, you know, from Manchin's perspective, 75000 might seem like a lot of money in West Virginia, but in California, it's it means a hell of a lot less. So it, it, it's interesting how this is all going to play out. But it's almost like the minimum wage argument, you know, that Biden wants to raise the federal minimum wage from seven twenty-five an hour to $15 an hour nationwide. Well, wages vary. Cost of living varies depending on where you live. I mean, definitely here in California with housing just so insane expensive, taxes so insane expensive. It's an expensive place to live in California. Um, the minimum wage in California, depending on where you work, is already 13 or $14 an hour. So $15 an hour, not that big of a leap, but in other states in middle America, in the um, the southern part of the United States, $15 an hour is a huge leap forward. So it's interesting, again, how the federal government, they try to be these central planners, right? They try to push the buttons and move the levers to optimize or to engineer the economy or to engineer society. And they just never can get it right because you can't get it right as a central planner because there's so much there's so much variance, um, not only by geography, but people's lifestyles and and people's careers and where they live and how they spend money vary so dramatically that you can never really get it quite right if you're trying to centrally plan it. So no matter how they push the buttons and move the knobs, it's it's always going to be a cluster and it's going to end up screwing some people and and benefiting others at the expense of those that got screwed. Now, Andrew Yang, I'll give him credit, at least now, granted, I'm no fan of UBI, universal basic income, but at least Andrew Yang takes a lot of this out of it. He just says everyone should get UBI. It doesn't matter who you are. If you're if you're poor, you're middle class, you're rich, he goes, I just want to remove the politics from it and give it to everyone. And so Andrew Yang is saying if you're going to do a stimulus, everyone should get it. Now, we can debate the merits of that, um, but at least that removes a little bit of the central planning and a little bit of the, you know, rob from Peter to pay Paul. It, it kind of treats everyone equal, you know. So I just think it's an interesting concept. And, and you know, these Democrats, they're going to fight among themselves. It'll be interesting to see if Manchin holds the line and lowers the threshold or lowers the cap to limit the number of people that can get the stimulus <laughs> and then end up. You know, setting up, as Bernie said, where Trump was rewarding more of the working class than the Democrats would, even though the Democrats claim that they're the party of the little guy. So it's just funny how it all shakes out. Um, the other interesting th- uh, angle to this is you ever notice, like when it comes to paying taxes, it's, you know, if you don't pay taxes, you get fined. If you continue to blow off the fines, you know, people will show up at your front door with guns and haul you away and put you in a cage. I mean, you don't believe me, ask Arsenio Hall um, and a lot of other celebrities that have been put in jail. Uh, Pete Rose went to jail for tax evasion. Um, a lot of a lot of celebrities have gone to jail and there's a lot of regular people that have gone to jail for not paying taxes. So they use the coercive power of government to 
take your money. But when it comes time to actually getting some of that back, it's like pulling teeth. It's like dealing with an insurance company, right? You got to make those insurance payments. They'll pay those premiums every month. But when it comes time to actually collect on it, to, to get the benefit of the insurance policy, it's like hard. It's difficult. And that's how the government is making it this uh, in this case. So I'm, I'm of the opinion that really the best stimulus that they could offer is a job. But rather than, you know, you know, cranking up the printing press, so this is going to be one point nine trillion dollars. You know, the, they're already deep in a hole in debt. The the federal budget's already in a massive deficit and they're just going to keep printing money. And, you know, at some point, someone's got to pay the piper. The better angle to this is just to open up the damn economy and let people go back to work, because not only will they be able to earn their own money rather than trying to take it from other people, whether it's taxpayers today or future generations of taxpayers. But ideally, um, they'll be able to work today and earn what they make and do so in a way that's good for them, that builds their self-esteem. So they're not sitting at home idle. They're not being productive. And we're seeing a lot of people that that's that's happening. I mean, frankly, a lot of students are going through that challenge of being idle and not being productive. And it's it's eroding their lifestyle. So I don't know how this is all going to shake out. You know, I'm sure the Democrats will figure out something. The Democrats have control of both both houses. What's the both chambers? That's the word. Both chambers of Congress. They got control of the White House. They'll figure out something, but it's just an intriguing situation. And all the while, you know, the people are just pawns in this whole game. That's why I titled this podcast episode, The $1,400 Stimulus Check Game, because it is a game. And we're being manipulated. You know, we're being kind of hanging in the wind as these politicians make decisions on who should get the stimulus check and who won't get the stimulus check. And you know that a lot of their decision-making is based on their re-election chances. And, you know, a lot of this process, it's not based on fairness. It's not based on practicality. It's not based on economics. It's ultimately based on power. And it's ultimately going to be based on, on politics rather than economics when they go about making this decision. So, um, yeah, the best stimulus check is a job. You know, another great stimulus check for the working people is a tax break. Um, let people keep more of their own money. Um, that's the kind of way we need to be looking at this because they're never going to get it right. And they're going to continue to manipulate it and they're going to bail out large corporations that so they've already done. And you could probably imagine there's going to be more of that. And it just goes on and on and on. And it's 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 just nonsense. And so I sit here, you know, doing my podcast, I just want to share my thoughts on this. What do you think? Um, this how do you think this covid stimulus check uh, $1,400? How do you think it's going to shake out? Will you be one of the ones that get it? You know, here in California, you know, it's interesting in California, if you're working, you know, a great number of people, proportionately speaking, are earning higher incomes. Um, but there are still a great number of people here in California that are in poverty, that are struggling to make ends meet. And that $1,400 check would actually make a pretty nice difference for them. Um, but 
how is it affecting you? Now, you know, speaking for myself, I won't get it. I won't qualify. Um, and I'm, you know, happy about the fact that I don't qualify because I'm doing okay on my own and my family's doing okay on our own. But how is it affecting you? And how do you feel when the Democrats now, after promising, if you voted for Ossoff and Warnock in Georgia, that you'd get this money? Now, maybe you won't. You know, maybe if you're earning $60,000 a year, uh, you're not going to get it because you don't have as great of a need as other people. Very interesting process. So, um, I, yeah, again, I invite your thoughts and comments here on the live stream. Um, but, yeah, want to just give you a reach out, ask you to join me on social media. You can follow me on Twitter, John Riley Poway. My Facebook page is John Riley Project. Uh, John Riley Project is the Facebook page and all my episodes are posted there. So, you know, reach out. Love the conversation on social media. We have some good conversations out there and uh, look forward to making this as interactive as we can. Um, I want to now just briefly touch on the schools and here in San Diego County and even here in our own Poway Unified School District, the school situation is it's a moving target. And I. I haven't been keeping up on the day to day of this because, you know, both my children have graduated um, from, you know, the the K through 12 from Poway Unified. Um, But I know a lot of families are also kind of hanging in the wind and the rules are changing and the schools are open and they're closed and they're open for some people, but not for other people. And, you know, how are you handling this? Um, I know a lot of my wife's coworkers, you know, they have children that are in school and, it's hell as a parent, you know, you're trying to manage your children, manage your career. And, you know, when the, when the children are at school, then you, you can be productive in your career. But if the children have to stay home, can you stay home with them? It's very disruptive when the rules change. How are you handling this? Uh, let's take a look at what's happening actually here in our area. And there was a really good article in the Union Tribune. And it was this morning. It was, in fact, it was their headline article, at least on the website, San Diego Union Tribune.com. And the title of the article is Pediatricians, Schools Must Open Now to Relieve Children's Suffering. And it was an amazing article because it went down the path of how these kids, a lot of them, are just not learning. Um, you know, despite the best efforts of some of these teachers, you put a kid in front of a computer screen in a Zoom class and they begin to tune out. They're not engaged. A lot of these children are becoming depressed. Um, and it's amazing what's happening in the schools. Now, here in San Diego County, there's been, you know, the, sometimes the school have been closed or they've been open and it, the rules have changed. But what's interesting is here in Poway Unified, my understanding is, is that they recently um, opened up kindergarten through, I think it's fifth grade. And those have been open now for a couple of weeks. And that's good. I mean, because, you know, I, again, I'm, I'm a huge proponent of online learning. And I think online learning plays a really important role in for college students where they can watch online lectures. I think online learning can play a, a, a pivotal role in high school specifically for students that are on a college track um, that want to get supplemental content and in some cases have some of their classes streamed. I think that can be very powerful. But at the low end, at, you know, first and second graders, I mean, let's be real. The computer is 
largely an entertainment device for them, not a, a, a device that they use to learn. Now, of course, there are some exceptions. Some parents have been very good with educational content for their children. But for the most part, a lot of these kids are struggling. And so opening up the schools makes sense for them. And based on my understanding, a lot of these kids, you know, the risk to them and the risk to the teacher is very, very low, far lower than it is in the general community. So finally, they're coming to their senses and opening it up for K K through five. But middle school and high school are still not open. And again, those are the students that are doing this online. But it was interesting that they're not going to open up the middle schools and the high schools in San Diego County until the COVID case rate drops into the red tier, which is seven cases for every 100,000 um, 100, people. So, which again is a, a minuscule amount, but they want seven cases out of 100,000 people in order to open up the schools. But where are we now? The last test, I, at least the last case rate I saw was 677 cases for every 100,000 people. So we're basically 10 times over the limit uh, to qualify to get our high school and middle school students into the classroom. That's not going to happen for a long time. And I know the trend lines are going down, which is great. Um, Case rates are down. Um, You know, hospitalization numbers are down. Deaths are down. We're going in the right direction. People are getting vaccines. But When are these schools going to be opened up for middle school and high school? Are they going to even be opened up in this school year? Are we going to get all the way through, you know, May and June and still not have open open schools for our older students? I I wonder. Um, But what was intriguing by this is what's getting in the way? You know, what's the problem? Why can't the schools open? Who's making these decisions? Well, a lot of these decisions come from the state. They all come from government leaders. And in many cases, they're coming from our governor, Gavin Newsom, and people on his staff. Well, who are the people that are influencing our leaders in Sacramento, particularly our Democratic leaders? And a lot of it are the, are the teachers unions. And what was I did a little research and I went to our teacher union website here in Poway Unified. It's called the Poway Federation of Teachers. And they publish a, you know, an update for the teachers to let them know what's going on. And there was a really good, you know, four page PDF that was posted on the site that, you know, brought the teachers up to speed on when the schools are going to reopen and what the criteria are. And they actually went into a little bit about the budget and and how likely they may be getting raises. It was an interesting little piece. But what was interesting is that according to the Poway Federation of Teachers, Secondary survey results showed more than 80% of teachers did not feel comfortable returning under current health conditions. You're thinking 80%. So this is a big reason why the schools are not opening is because the teachers are uncomfortable doing this. And I'm thinking to myself, now, granted, I know there's, there's a virus and I know that, you know, you can catch a virus. I get that. But there are, these children are suffering in in, in their um, working or their or their online classes when they're doing these classes on Zoom from home. They're suffering. They're going into depression in a lot of cases. Um, it's almost like a lost year for a lot of these students. When 
actually private schools have been open for months and with minimal problems. Um, and even in ser- some school districts, not too far from us, have also seen openings and haven't had that big of a problem. And there was a study that was done, and this was intriguing. And I want to read this. Um, this was from the article in the San Diego Union Tribune this morning. And it said that a study of 11 North Carolina school districts that had reopened with more than 90,000 students and staff found that over nine weeks of in-person school, there were 32 COVID-19 infections that were transmitted within the schools compared to 773 cases among staff and students that were acquired from outside the school. Not one of the 32 in-school infections was transmitted from child to adult, according to the study. So what does that mean? It means that A, classrooms are dramatically safer than the population at large. And the, the transmission of the virus, there were no cases of this where it went from a child to a teacher. So the risk to the teacher is minimal. Now, meanwhile, we have healthcare workers that have been out there for most of the last year busting their butt, taking care of COVID patients without a vaccine. We've had um, grocery store workers helping people get food so they can live without a vaccine. People have been working hard to provide um, for their families and also to provide for customers in their community to help people in need by providing products and service to them during this pandemic. And yet they're out there working without a vaccine, but the teachers won't. The teachers won't do it. And meanwhile, our students are the ones that are suffering. And it's just amazing to me because the teachers claim, specifically the teachers union, when you see the ads on television and on the radio and on the internet, The teachers claim it's for the children. We're here for the kids. It's all about the children. But when it comes down to it, it's not about the kids. It's about them. It's about what's in their best interest. And now, if you want to just say it like that, you know, we're in it for ourselves. We want to pursue our own self-interest, then fine. Um, And we can have that conversation. But what they do is they they make it about they deflect and it's it, they make it about altruism about oh it's about the other it's about the child it's about the children when in fact if if it was about the children the teachers would be back in classrooms teaching our kids where it's safer than it is if you're at Albertsons or Target or Costco it's safer um, than when you are out in the general public and. According to that study, 90,000 students and staff, not one transmission from a child to a teacher. So now, meanwhile, the other crazy part of this is, is that parents are the ones, right? The parents are the ones that are trying to manage this, trying to manage their career, manage their children, children at home working from, they're working from home, or maybe they have to go into the office. But if they go in the office, what do they do with their kid? Who watches their child? You can't leave a six-year-old first grader at home alone. So they're scrambling. A lot of times they're unable to work because they have to care for their children. And the reason they're caring for their children is because the schools won't open. And so you can see this cascading effect um, that's having huge impact throughout the economy and affecting people's lives. Um, 
dramatically disruption, dramatic disruption to their lives because of the way people are, because of the way teachers are refusing to get into the classroom. And now granted, they're now in front of, of the children, K through five, the little ones, but the middle school students and the high school students, I mean, they may never get into the classroom if they, if they demand that the case rate get down into the red tier. We're right now at 67 cases per 100,000. They have to get down to seven cases per 100,000. So a 90% reduction, roughly 90% reduction in the case rate in order to get the teachers back in the classroom. To me, that's unbelievable. And then meanwhile, what are parents to do? In fact, they're kind of stuck, right? Now, would it be great if a parent had a choice? Would it be great if the funding for education followed the child, that students were the ones that were funded rather than institutions? Now, then the student could say, I'm going to take my my um, the money that the, the government is allocating for my education, and instead I can go to a school that's actually open. And then the, cl- the teachers, I mean, then the students can actually be taught. But of course, the vouchers are blocked by who? Pretty much the teachers union, because the vouchers are what undermine um, their their control and their power, because with vouchers, some of their resources, some of that revenue is redirected to other schools, redirected at the choice of parents, at the choice of their child and their st- the students. But instead, the vouchers are blocked. So the, the teachers are the teachers union. I should be really clear. The teachers unions are freezing the system. They're, they're refusing to go to work um, and have been able to manipulate uh, government officials to set the rules uh, to make it difficult for the teachers to go back to work. And at the same time, they make it harder for parents to redirect their resources to other schools, especially poor and lower middle class families that can't afford private tuition in the first place. Um, they're the ones that really get screwed by this um, because now they have to stay home, manage their children. They don't have an income. And then they become a completely dependent on the money that comes from the government. And meanwhile, the money that comes from the government, they're playing games with it right now. So you can see that the people are being treated as pawns in this process. The people are the ones that are being manipulated by government, by Union uh, government employee unions by governors and senators and and really of both parties. And the issue is, is when the hell are we doing about this? What can we do to instead take control over our own lives so that we're not manipulated by this process? So I want to get into that next. But before we do, I just want to give another you know shout out to to every every one of you out there. I'd love for you to join our mailing list. If you go on to johnreillyproject.com slash subscribe, there you can sign up for our mailing list and we'll send you updates on different things we're working on on this podcast project, other elements of the John Riley Project that are beyond the scope of the podcast itself. We'll give you some insights, uh, kind of an inside peek behind the curtain of what we're working on. So we encourage you to sign up for our email list at johnreillyproject.com slash subscribe. And we really welcome you joining our community. Um, Okay. So that's what I said from the very beginning. It's a game, right? The COVID stimulus, the $1,400 check, they're they're playing the game in DC. Who's going to get it? Who's not going to get it? They promise that 
you know, everyone's going to get it or the working class is going to get it. Now they're talking about changing the rules. Um, and, and they're, they're talking about closing the economy, opening the economy, closing the schools, opening the schools. Everything is being manipulated by people beyond your control. What are you going to do about it? Now, the recommendation I always have, and I, I enjoy talking about this topic on the podcast, is, is how to take control of your own income, of your own career, and ultimately of your own life. So maybe you have a job and you've got a good job and you're working for a company and then suddenly what happens, that company, they get shut down by the government Um, or that company goes through a layoff and you're laid off. Or maybe your company gets bought by another company and you know what happens with mergers is that they have overlap. They have multiple people doing the same thing. They have a consolidation and then people are laid off. And that happens a lot in the economy. You know, we can argue if if that's good or bad and, and what we should be doing to, to minimize that. But in the end, if you have a job, you are ultimately working for the man. And the man is the one that has control over your source of income. And when we're in a situation like this with the COVID crisis, um, with the economy in flux, you know, people are scrambling. People are trying to adapt. What are you doing about it? Are you waiting and hoping that money from heaven is going to land on your lap from Gavin Newsom or from Nancy Pelosi and, and Joe Biden? Is it going to happen? Is it not? And what are you doing about it? Well, what I'd always recommend is just figure out a way to be so damn successful that it doesn't matter that it doesn't matter what these politicians are doing, that you're earning, you know, plenty of money, that your that your lifestyle is comfortable, that you're paying your bills, and that you're happy, and you're doing it in a way that you can control. And so there are a few steps to do this. And we've talked a little bit about this in previous podcasts. And the first is to think like an entrepreneur. Don't think like an employee. Think like an entrepreneur. Look at the marketplace and look for opportunity that's out there. Find better ways of improving uh, people's uh, the, the services that people receive. New ways, improve ways of product development. Come up with new ideas. Think like an entrepreneur. This is one of the reasons why I'm so supportive of the gig economy. And you know, this was a, a big debate in the last election cycle where gig economy workers, you know, they're, you know, the classic is the Uber driver, the, the um, Uber Eats, the DoorDash, the, the Lyft driver. They're the ones that are sort of the classic gig worker. Now, gig working is way more than that. But even if you look at the gig workers that are drivers, those gig workers have to think like an entrepreneur. They have to hustle. They have to decide when they're going to work. Um, they've got to uh, look for opportunity. They've got to be positioned in the right place to be able to capitalize on opportunity. They're not just punching in and punching out. And so that's why I'm such a big supporter of the gig economy is that mindset and having that mindset to take advantage of that opportunity. And then what do you do from there? You build skills, man. Do you, what are you good at? Are you a bookkeeper? Maybe you're really good with finance. Well, if you are, rather than working as 
a clerk, an accounting clerk for the company you work for, or maybe even a controller, why not do bookkeeping for other companies and take control over your source of income rather than being dependent on a single employer, start up your own business and create multiple streams of income so that if one of them goes away, you've got other accounts and other sources of income that can keep you going. So you're more in control over your situation. So develop skills. If you don't have those skills, figure out how to develop them. You can learn so much online today in free courses, just on YouTube. You'd be shocked at the amount of good content good information you can learn. And for very modest fees, there are excellent um, paid classes, digital courses that you can learn almost any discipline, almost any skill that can make you productive and marketable in this gig economy marketplace. I strongly encourage that. And then, you know, get started, start up your own business, not that hard to do, um, and then begin diversifying your client base. So you're not dependent on one person, not dependent on one employer or one client. Diversify your customer base. So again, like if one of them goes south, hey, you got nine or 10 other clients that keep you going and keep and, and give you greater control over your situation. So I wanted to talk a little bit about how one of the techniques you can use to do this. And one of the things that I do when I'm not doing my podcast, right, um, is I own a marketing agency and I help my clients win new customers and retain their existing customers. So I do a lot of digital marketing, a lot of database marketing, direct marketing. There's a lot of ways to win new customers in the market today. And especially as the digital economy is exploding and there's, there's new techniques, new strategies, new technologies to, to win new customers. And I want to, sh- you know, as I go through many of these podcasts now and into the future, I'm going to share some thoughts and some ideas that I think could be helpful for you, whether you're starting a business or maybe you're running your own business now or you're an employee of an existing company. I'm going to share some tips and tricks to make you more productive on how you can win and retain more customers. So your website, let's talk about websites for a second. Now, what is the purpose of a website, right? It used to be that websites were essentially online brochures. A website, you had a nice front page and maybe you had a page that showed your products and services. If you're a restaurant, maybe you had a menu. Um, And you basically, it was a brochure that kind of told your story and explained your offering, and maybe it explained your unique selling proposition, what made you different from your competitors. And then like a online, bro- like a brochure, like a print brochure, you probably had a contact page with your phone number and address, or maybe there was a form there that someone could fill out if they wanted to ask a question. And maybe your website had an about us page that talked about the owners or the history of the company. And a website, you know, that, that was how websites were built, you know, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, 10 years ago, even today, you'd be shocked at how many company websites are basically just a glorified electronic brochure, like a little trifold document that basically showcases what's, what their company is all about. Well, one area that I found to be extraordinarily helpful for businesses is to create landing pages on websites. So what's a landing page? 
Um, a landing page is number one is a place where you can direct um, direct people to your site to a specific page where they can land and be converted into a lead. And and how do you do that? Well, landing pages are very different than product pages or service pages. Landing pages typically have valuable content that's really helpful for customers or for prospective customers that provides value, that provides information that helps your customers um, learn new things or improve their business, essentially acts as a magnet to attract people to your business. And those those landing pages are usually very, very narrowly focused. They could be very focused on a specific product or a specific challenge that customers face. And these landing pages essentially tell that story about how there's a problem and how your company solves that problem. And at the very top of that landing page, right next to the headline, what is there is a, is a lead form, a form fill opportunity where you can generate leads. Because when people fill out that form, they're essentially raising their hand in a crowd and telling you they're interested. So companies, a lot, you know, many companies um, right now, the only contact form they have on their website is the one that's on their contact page. My recommendation is build out lots of landing pages, landing pages for every product you sell, landing pages for almost every problem you solve, that your website really should have 10, 20 different landing pages about niche, little targeted aspects of your business, every one of them with a form fill opportunity. And that form fill, when they fill it out, where does that information go with their name, their phone number, their email address, and information about what they want? is converted into an email, comes right to you as a lead. Leads are hard to come by, right? It used to be, remember the movie, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, man, I need the good leads. I need the good ones. Where do leads come from? Well, it used to be people would dial for dollars, right? That was telemarketing. That's what people did 30 years ago, 40 years ago in the business to business marketing. You know, smarter salespeople were out there to build relationships, but it was always a very push-oriented process, getting their message out. Many people use direct marketing to get direct mail pieces or even email pieces with the advent of email to get information in front of prospects. But now, with landing pages, we're seeing a lot more pull. We're seeing a lot more opportunities where, where businesses can essentially attract customers in their direction. They can essentially create these lead magnets to attract people to their business where they can be converted and and captured as a lead that their sales organization can engage with. And landing pages do that. Now, in the marketplace today, there's a lot, the new trendy name for landing pages are funnels, are marketing funnels. And there's a company called ClickFunnels. You may have heard of him. Guy named, I think his name's Russell Brunson created that company. And he is just killing it. He's doing really well. He's a marketer selling a marketing product or service. And his company ClickFunnels is revolutionizing the way a lot of companies go to market. And it's terrific. And I encourage you to check him out and search for ClickFunnels. You're going to learn a lot more about how websites really are no longer just online brochures. Websites are lead generation devices. And frankly, really, what is the purpose of a website? And I said that in the beginning. The purpose of a website really should do just two things. A, le- a website should either 
sell product, you know, it should be an e-commerce site that actually can generate revenue, has a cash register directly attached to it. It can be an e-commerce site or the second purpose of a website is to generate leads. If you're in a business to business or a high ticket business to consumer uh, business situation, you need leads. And if you have a business, that's what your business website should be focused on is lead generation and revenue generation exclusively. So um, Russell Brunson has created this company called ClickFunnels, and it's essentially a glorified landing page creation company is what he does. And it's a it's a terrific way to ramp up your knowledge on this new way of going to market. And so um, what's interesting is, is that for many of my clients, I just create lots of landing pages for my clients. And then what we do is those landing pages, number one, they get indexed by Google and other search engines. So when people are doing searches on these narrow, niche kind of topics, these long tail keywords end up getting indexed and these landing pages show up in organic Google search results. That drives unpaid traffic to those landing pages. My clients are also using social media to include information of value to their customers and asking them to click on a link that takes them to a landing page where they can get more information, more value. And then there's a lead form right there where those that online traffic can be converted into leads. But a lot of companies are now doing paid ads, directing people to these landing pages. And then the next part of this process, which I think I'm going to talk about in a future podcast, is when you get that lead, what do you do with it? And right now, maybe you just want to get their name and phone number. They're interested and you have a salesperson and you can engage with that customer right now. But a lot of times customers, when they're interested in new things, they're just kind of poking around, they're window shopping, they may not be ready to buy. Well, there are a technology called autoresponders that essentially set up automated drip email sequences to people once they express interest and can kind of nurture that lead all the way through the selling cycle. And then I'll talk about that in a future, a future um, podcast episode. But I guess the broader point of this whole topic is this. Um, these politicians in D.C. are jacking you around. They're jacking you around by not only manipulating this whole COVID situation, and especially the, at the state and local level, you know, shutting businesses down, turning them on at 25% capacity, shutting them down again. Then you can say you're going to be outdoors only. Then you can't be outdoors. Well, now you can be outdoors only again. Companies are getting screwed with. Companies are pawns in the game. And, you know, like I, ta- I talked about in my last podcast, the guy that cuts my hair, his business, he had to close it because he couldn't survive this on again, off again. He's an individual entrepreneur, had built his own barbershop here in the city of Poway. Terrific business, great young man. But because of COVID, he can't make his business viable because of the way the, authorita- the authoritarians are shutting him off. And then turning it back on, and, he, and he, it's just too hard to manage. The key is to take control of your situation so that you aren't a pawn in their game. And how do you do that? You do it by starting up a business. You do that by thinking like an entrepreneur. Now, 
if you want to think like an entrepreneur, you also have to think about what kind of businesses are going to be immune to government manipulation. What kind of businesses are going to be able to have legs in the new economy? What kind of businesses are going to be able to evolve with the new economy? Think strategically about what your skills are and how those can be transformed into a business of your own. Set up your own side hustle. Set up your own moonlighting business and you'd be surprised that can turn into a full-time gig. That's what I did. I started up a moonlighting business for myself in the late 90s and had a moonlighting gig. In fact, I had an e-commerce website back in probably 1998. I think it was when Yahoo set up a shopping mall. I was experimenting there. And eventually I began doing marketing services for clients on a moonlighting basis in 2001. And then uh, I business kept growing and growing to the point where I couldn't manage my day job and my moonlighting job. And so I quit my day job in 04 and then started up my own business and built it and built it. And now I've got a viable business. And I've, I've ridden the economy, uh, the roller coaster of the economy. But I'll tell you what, I have been in dramatically greater control over my income, over my work-life balance than I ever would if I was an employee for a company, an employee that would get laid off, an employee that would struggle to find a new job, an employee that would be essentially another pawn in the system. Um, taking control of your income, taking control of your career is critical. So if you don't have a job now, it's, this is the best time of all to start up your own side hustle. You'd be shocked at how easy it is to get started. If you already have a job, think about what it would take to create your own side hustle, to provide the, the skill that you're really good at, to provide that directly to customers, directly to them on nights and weekends and see how this evolves. Because once you get started, it gets wheels, it gets legs, and it starts going. And you're going to put yourself into a much better place than being manipulated by the government, by politicians, or by corporate executives that are going through mergers or mass layoffs. You don't need to be a pawn in the system. You can take control. And one way to do it is to build a business and to build your business so that you have a, an infrastructure, essentially a marketing infrastructure that attracts leads um, and does it through the use of landing pages or sales funnels or marketing funnels. Now, like I said, we'll talk a little bit about autoresponders in a future episode, um, but we'll also talk about how to drive traffic to those landing pages through paid ads and organic posts and through search engine optimization. I've touched a little bit on it already in this podcast, but I'll talk about it more in terms of creating and creating offers, free offers that serve as lead magnets that drive people to those sites. And we'll chat about that in a future episode. So, um, okay, so it's 54 minutes. I think we'll wrap this one up. This is episode 199, right? So next episode will be 200 on the John Riley Project. I'm looking forward to that. Um, my 100 episode, I had Kevin McNamara on, and we talked about the farm in Poway. That was a great conversation. In fact, that's that podcast episode on YouTube's continues to get great numbers of views, you know, even now, well, um, you know, months after the election, people were watching, still watching that to learn about that project. 
I'm going to have episode 200 next. I, I don't know if I'm going to make it a big deal, maybe just a another episode in the in the, in my in my series, but uh 200 is a major milestone. A lot of people they start these podcasts, you know, there's like a half a million podcasts out there. There's more and more being created every day. But most of them have like, you know, maybe seven episodes, maybe eight episodes, and they kind of run out of steam and they stop. Um, I'm really prideful of the fact that I'm up to 199 today and soon to be up to 200. I think that's really great. So I can't do it without your support. Um, thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you, everybody, for watching. Thank you, everybody, for you know joining me on social media. Um, you know, like I said, you can join me on Twitter. John Riley Poway is my handle. Visit me on Facebook at John Riley Project. That's my uh, Facebook page. And then you can also join my mailing list. Go to my website, johnreillyproject.com slash subscribe. My website, by the way, has all of the episodes. You can view them all there. You can listen to them all there. If you haven't already downloaded your iTunes or Stitcher or Spotify or Pandora or iHeartRadio, you know, we're on all of those platforms too. So um, if you want, you can just come directly to our website and get all the content there. And, and you know, if you want to learn more about what this podcast is about, I encourage you to go back, check out some of our previous episodes, especially the ones where we've had guests, because some of our guests have been fantastic. And once again, I want to give a big thank you to Pete Murray for joining me on Friday, uh, where we talked about the the Trump impeachment trial and the process. And it's just getting started. So that's a good primer that gets you up to speed so we can see how the events are going to unfold this week. So everyone, thank you for joining me and we'll catch you later. This is John Riley for episode 199. We'll see you later, friends. Bye-bye.